We're going to be back in Mark chapter 2 today, if you brought a Bible with you. If you don't have a physical Bible, no problem. If you have a phone or a tablet, uh, I'm going to say a few things before we come to God's Word, so it gives you time, even if you need to go download an app, you have time to do that. If you would like a scripture journal, which is a combination of the scriptures that we're reading as we work through the book of Mark, and then just a bunch of blank lines on the other side, we have some of those at the Connect table out in the lobby, right outside the double doors that you came in today when you came to church. And those are free. You're welcome to go get one now if you'd like to. You can dig around. I think there's a handful back there. Uh, You can get one after the service. You don't have to use one, but it's a tool that has helped me and I think has helped some of our other members. So we just want to make sure that you know that that's available to you. If you were to back up a little bit to verse 1 of Mark chapter 2, we're not going to read all of that, but I just want to remind you of what we're doing. Beginning in the opening verse of Mark chapter 2, Jesus has a series of five conflicts with his opponents, the Pharisees. Uh, He goes five rounds with them. And we said last week, we took a little bit of time at the beginning of last week's message to try to define the mindset of a Pharisee. I think it's easy Uh, to oversimplify the Pharisees or to just go, I don't know what that word means. I've heard it used in culture. I know it's negative, but I want to give you the mindset because it'll help us predict what they're going to do. When we know how they think, we begin to understand why it is that they pick on certain things that Jesus does and why they leave him alone when he does some of the other more controversial things. Last week, we said that a Pharisee uh, is a person who's been formed to become arrogant. So you know people like that. Uh, A person who's politically correct, but also hyper-conservative. And the most important thing you need to know about a Pharisee is that they live their life dishonestly. They're liars. They put rules on other people that they have no intention of following themselves, that they don't want to follow, that they don't follow in secret in their own homes, in the privacy of of kind of the, the places where nobody else can see them. They will follow the rules in public. They'll perform on a stage for anybody that will clap or be impressed or think that the Pharisees are so amazing in the way that they follow God's law, but their hearts are not really in it. And we wouldn't know that at face value, but that's one of the things that Jesus calls out in them over and over again. He knows their hearts because he's God. Now, our passage this morning, uh, which is going to begin in verse 23 of Mark chapter 2, it tells us the story of the fourth round of these five conflicts that Jesus has in a row. If you think about the structure of the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1 is really a summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because this is Peter's story that Mark wrote down on Peter's behalf, If you think about it, that that makes sense, right? Logically, the first chapter of Mark needs to give you all of the high points of what Jesus could do. And so there's a healing in that chapter. There's a miracle of casting out a demon. There's a miracle of encountering and dealing with a leper. There's the part where Jesus teaches in the synagogue. We get a little bit of his origin. We get him calling some disciples to himself. There's sort of um, a small version of each of the things that are going to show up in the rest of the book because that was basically the shortest gospel presentation anybody could make in the first century A.D., That little bit of Mark chapter 1 was the oral history that Peter spoke to anybody he met and that traveled throughout the early churches. So it makes sense structurally, if you think about this like a a movie, Act 2 is when the villains show up on the scene, right? We have the origin story, we have the background of Jesus, we have enough little versions of where he came from and what he's about that we think we can trust him, and then his opponents enter the scene. And that's what we're in the middle of right now. We're nearly done. Next week we'll be finished with these five encounters between Jesus and his opponents. The first encounter was Jesus forgiving a man of every wrong that that man had ever done. Now, that man would have thought his biggest problem was the fact that he was paralyzed. I'm talking about the story where the man is lowered through the hole in the roof uh, at the house that Jesus is staying at. But the thing that scandalized the Pharisees was that Jesus said to the man that his sins were forgiven. The second conflict emerged when Jesus called a man named Levi, who was a national traitor, basically public enemy number one among the Jewish people. And Jesus called Levi to himself to follow as an apprentice. Third is what we looked at last week when Jesus and his apprentices refused to participate in the Pharisees' somber, sad, fake 
empty brand of spirituality. Now, I mentioned to you last week that the Pharisees liked to do what I call spiritual traffic stops, where they didn't have cars, but they would walk behind somebody in the marketplace or in the temple, and they would literally stop them, tap them on the shoulder or shout their name or just say, hey, 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 stop, 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 to the point that that person would have to stop what they were doing. If they were carrying something heavy or they were on their way to work, they had to just be late and set their stuff down. And then the Pharisee would examine this person publicly in the middle of the street. It would be like if I called out one of you by name and asked you to stand, and then I began challenging you with Old Testament law. You would never come to this church again. And eventually, no one would come because nobody wants to do that. So the Pharisees enjoyed that process. They liked an opportunity to compare themselves to anybody else in town, anybody else that they would bump up against out on the road in the countryside. And what they're going to try to do today is they're going to try to pull Jesus over to the side of the road and give him a ticket for breaking the law. But they're going to find out that that's actually going to create an even bigger mess for them than if they would have just left him alone and let him do the thing that he was there to do. So let's see that. Look at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23, and let's look at the fourth conflict between Jesus and the law keepers. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. We don't know which grain fields, but most of Israel had been cultivated to grow grain. So you can just imagine this is the countryside, a little bit outside of town. He's probably walking from one part of the region of Galilee to another part of the region of Galilee. He does this often. And as he and his disciples made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain off of the top of the grain stalks. So you've seen like at least a picture of wheat on the bag of bread that you buy at the grocery store, right? You've seen that it sprouts at the top and you, okay, so they're just picking the heads off, popping them in their mouth, chewing them up, they're spitting out the chaff, they're swallowing the grain. And the Pharisees approach Jesus, verse 24, and they say, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Sabbath is capitalized, so that must be important. That tells us that something's going on here. Maybe you've heard of that, maybe you haven't. We're going to get there in a minute. We'll try to dig out, excavate what's, what that means and what's going on there. Jesus answers them, and he says this. He asks them a question. Have you Pharisees never read what David did? David is an Old Testament guy. He was a king. He wrote a lot of songs. He played a harp, killed a lion with a slingshot, slayed a giant. You've probably heard of him. You've seen the veggie tales. Jesus said, have you never read what David did when he was in need and he was hungry? He and those who were with him, here's what he did, verse 26, how he entered the house of God, which at that point in the timeline is a tabernacle. It's a big tent that God's people would carry around with them everywhere they went, sort of like a temporary pop-up temple. So he went into that place. In the time of Abiathar, the high priest, you don't know who that guy is, it doesn't matter. Jesus is just trying to give like a, Um, a timeline anchor to these Pharisees who actually do know all of these details. He says, and David ate the bread of the presence. Again, that's capitalized. We'll talk about that in a second. What does that mean? Which is not lawful for anybody but the priests to eat. David was not a priest. So Jesus is saying David was breaking the law. And he also gave it to those who were with him, who we know from the story also were not priests. Then Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So far in the book of Mark, we have not come across a puzzle quite like this yet. This will happen again, where we'll encounter some really intense moments of lawyer speak between Jesus and the law keepers, and Jesus will throw down and put them in their place in a way that's both gentle but really serious and firm. There's a lot to this passage that if, if I was reading through Mark just as fast as I could, I would probably go... Okay, Jesus doesn't like the Pharisees. He's, David did something. I don't really understand that. I might roll back in my Bible to 1 Samuel and read that story, but it doesn't offer a lot of insight into what Jesus is talking about here immediately. And I would take him at his 
word when he says in verse 28 that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Basically, I wouldn't know what to do with this. I wouldn't know how to kind of twist and solve the Rubik's Cube of what's going on, and we would move on. My goal with you today is not to do that. My goal is to try to identify, I think there are one, two, three, four puzzle pieces that are working together here that when we put them in place will show us the point that Jesus is making, and I think the news that he has for you that's sort of buried underneath all of this lawyer speak is some of the best news that people like you and I who live in a very fast-paced, very modern world can possibly hear. So, uh, before we can jump into what all of those puzzle pieces are, we have to start with God's law. And I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that none of you would say that Deuteronomy is even in your top 10 favorite books of the Bible, if I had to guess. You probably don't have a lot of books from Deuteronomy or verses around your kitchen. When you're getting coffee in the morning, you're reading about what to do if somebody hits your ox hard enough that its leg breaks but it doesn't die. That's probably not how you start your day. What I need to do for us then is give you quickly your honorary degree in Old Testament Law. So let's start with the Sabbath. It's capitalized in the way that the story is told in Mark. So it's telling us that this is something specific and serious. So we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And I'll just warn you, I have a lot of scripture for you today. If you want to go with me on the kind of the Bible drill here, we can do it together. But I will have the verses for you on the screen and I'm going to move quickly for the sake of time. So Sabbath shows up originally as part of Yahweh, God the Father's plan at the very beginning of time. When he creates everything that we see and touch and know, the world that we live in, Sabbath is a part of that. Listen to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. So this is the conclusion, even though it's chapter 2, this is a conclusion to what God has done in chapter 1 by creating all things. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing, the work of creation, and he ceased on the seventh day all of the work Work is a very important concept in Sabbath, so hang on to that idea. All of the work he'd been doing. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he ceased all of the work that he had been doing in creation. So God starts this idea of Sabbath, taking a seventh day to rest. He does that before he asks anybody else to do it, which is very much within God's character. We shouldn't be surprised. God never asks us to do stuff that he's unwilling to do. He doesn't hold a standard out for us that's unfair or that's a double standard where he gets to do whatever he wants, but we don't get to do whatever we want. God is always inviting us into his life, and all his law is doing is trying to put boundaries around what that life is and define it for us so that we can go with him. So from there, Yahweh takes this idea of every seventh day being planned around rest, the absence of work, and he impresses it on his covenant people. If you move forward in your Bible, one book chronologically to the Exodus scroll, the Sabbath is actually part of God's 10 rules for the good life, or what you may have heard called the 10 commandments. This is from Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. God says, remember the Sabbath day and set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor, there's work again, and do all of your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you will not do any work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your servants, nor your cattle, okay, that's a hard one to enforce, nor the resident foreigner who is inside your gates. If you have a house guest or somebody who's traveling through, if they're staying in your house, they're not working on Saturday, which is when the Sabbath used to be in in the ancient Near East. For in six days, so here's your reference back to Genesis 2, in six days... The Lord made the heavens and the earth, he made the sea, and he made all that is in them, and then he did what? He rested. So there's the second idea that's associated with Sabbath. Sabbath is about work and not doing it, 
and it's about rest and choosing to do it, which they're not binary. You can't assume that simply not working is resting or simply resting is not working. In 2023, we've figured out a way to blend all of that together. So we're always kind of doing both, and it's driving us insane. Like, we're just totally losing our minds as modern people. We'll talk more about that next week. But there's two choices. Do not work and choose to rest. This is the core idea of what's going on in the Sabbath. The, the book of Exodus goes on to tell us that you rest on the seventh day, and therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day. So he didn't, this isn't just like, I need a break, my feet hurt, my heavenly arms are too tired from making the earth. God is making a decision to invest some kind of blessing into this seven-day pattern where you work for six and you're off for one. God set it apart as holy. So Sabbath is commanded, and it orbits these two social ideas of work and order. Hopefully you can see that point. Can you nod your head for me if you can see that point? Okay, that's helpful. I know I don't usually ask you to do that, but we have a long way to go today. Okay, so the first law that's in the background of this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, they're front and center, but kind of the set behind them, is Sabbath. It's the idea that Sabbath is a legally binding part of Yahweh, God the Father's plan for humanity. That's puzzle piece one. The Pharisees know that. Jesus knows that. The majority of his apprentices know that. Levi might not because he hasn't been allowed to be in synagogue for a long time. But it seems like he grew up in synagogue because in his gospel, the gospel of Matthew, he quotes Hosea 6.6, which he wouldn't have known if he couldn't go to... Anyway, it doesn't matter to you. So just know that this is a piece of what's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees, and everybody knows the point that they're trying to make. Now, the question that that confronts us with is, are the Pharisees right? If what we just read is the law, then... Does, it, does a group of men who are walking through a grain field have the right to pick grain or not on the Sabbath? God seems very serious about the Sabbath. We just read that it's a part of his pattern in creation. Then he puts it into law to try to bring people into his life with him. So is Jesus wrong? Jesus says later in the Gospels that he didn't come to abolish the law, but it sure looks like he is here. It looks like he's like kind of throwing the law out completely if his guys are allowed to pick grain, which is usually work. It's actually a full-time job that people can have. Now, I think the answer to that is maybe, and it depends on the way that you interpret the law. We have to remember who the Pharisees are. I believe that if the Pharisees were the kind of men who had Jesus' best interest in mind, and they approached him lovingly, and they approached him with humility, and they expressed genuine concern for his eternal spirit, because Jesus, this is important, and we really need to make sure we're all on the same page, I would imagine Jesus' response would have been a little bit different. But it's not different, because Jesus isn't dealing with people who have his genuine interest in mind. He's dealing with men that want to set and spring a trap for him. These men are self-righteous, which means it's in their own best interest to try to present a cleaner and more polite and more culturally honorable life than the life that they think that Jesus is living. If you are a Pharisee, this is a tricky situation, what Jesus is doing and what his disciples are doing. I have to believe that probably some of the apprentice Pharisees had not yet been Pharisees long enough to have fully drunk the kind of Pharisaical Kool-Aid and lost their humanity along the way. But the majority of the men who are there speaking to Jesus are hoping that Jesus has finally fallen into a trap that he can't wiggle his way out of. And remember, this is early in Jesus' life. This is very early in his ministry. So they probably still think they can take this kind of rural rabble-rouser down before he ever gets to Jerusalem and begins to make an impact on Jewish culture at large. This is sort of a cultural or social character assassination attempt on their part. Now, the tricky part is that Technically, Jesus and his apprentices' decision to pick grain was actually protected by Old Testament law. So this is an interesting 
conundrum here. We have a law that we've read just a second ago from the book of Exodus, one of the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, where God says, keep the Sabbath day holy. But I'm about to show you another set of law from Deuteronomy 23 in which the exact action that Jesus and his apprentices are taking is codified into the law and protected. Um, This excerpt from Deuteronomy is about how God the Father makes provision for people who are hungry for people who don't own land or can't always find food. This is Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 24. When you enter the vineyard of your neighbor, you may eat as many grapes as you please. Sounds like a pretty good day, huh? But you must not take away any in a container. Okay, so you guys have probably, if you've lived here a year, 12 months, you've done the blueberry thing, right, in the fall, end of summer. There's a difference between hiking and grabbing whatever you can and your hands and face are stained blue by the time you summit whatever peak it is you're ascending and bringing like nine or ten backpacks and buckets with you to just get all the blueberries you can. You have that special scoop that has like a claw on the side that they only sell in Alaska. God is saying you can't go into your neighbor's vineyard and steal all his grapes. But if you're walking through your neighbor's vineyard and you're hungry, you can eat those grapes because technically... And this is a piece of the puzzle that our capitalist mindsets just really are offended by. Those are not your grapes. Those are God's grapes. Now, you're taking care of God's grapes, and God's going to let you sell some of God's grapes to God's people. And then when you sell God's grapes to God's people, you're going to get money, and you're going to give some of that money back to God, and you're going to use the rest to take care of your family and to be responsible. But ultimately, God is the one who decided that those grapevines were going to bear grapes. So he gets to tell anybody who wants that they can come into your vineyard, and they can take handfuls of grapes so that they don't have to go hungry. He goes on in verse 25. God says, when you go out into the ripe grain fields of your neighbor, this is exactly what's going on in Mark 2. You may pluck off the kernels with your hand, but you must not use a sickle on your neighbor's ripe grain. Again, you can't just like power up your tractor and roll it into your neighbor's three acres and harvest all of his plants and say, God told me it's okay, sorry. God isn't, in the same way that he's not a capitalist, he's also not a communist. He's trying to say, when you're hungry and you're walking, eat. You're a human being. I made you. I made you need to eat, so here's provision for you. No matter who you are, no matter what social standing you have, there's always something within arm's reach that you can eat. This is God's vision of a good world. So in summary, Old Testament law protected Jesus and his apprentices by allowing anybody who was hungry to walk and to gather grain and grapes so that they would not go hungry. Um, So that's law number two. That's the second puzzle piece that matters for the sake of us understanding what's going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. Anybody hungry can gather grain by hand and eat their fill. So what do you do if you're a Pharisee? Well, if you're not a Pharisee, I can tell you what you do. You give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. And you say, well, he's operating within the law of the Old Testament. Sure, it's a Sabbath, and maybe it makes me uncomfortable that he's not super religious in the way that he exercises his spirituality, but I have to let the book speak for itself. And the book tells me that these guys are allowed to do what they're doing. But if you are a Pharisee, you take whichever of those two laws serves your kingdom, and you sharpen the edge of it until it's a weapon, and then you use it to attack other people. And unfortunately, most of us probably know people who call themselves Christians who do the same thing with God's word. They find specific, small parts of the scriptures, they hone them to a razor's edge, they make sure they have every proof text possible, loaded up in their holster, ready to draw on you, and then they attack people who disagree with them. That's a Pharisee. The Pharisees want Jesus to have to pick one law over the other because they already have, and to them it's the only way to continue to build this self-righteous machine. If they were fair, if they were calm, if they were loving and kind and gracious and merciful, then just like Jesus, they would have said, these two laws seem to oppose one another, 
But because God gave both of them, they must both come from his character. They must both be representative of the good life with God. And therefore, we're going to just assume that they're in sync, even if our finite human brains can't comprehend how that could be. That's a much more gracious attitude than the Pharisees will ever take in Jesus' story. And unfortunately, it's a much more gracious attitude than many modern people who call themselves Christians tend to take when it comes to the Bible as well. Now, recall that for the last two weeks, we've talked about the rabbinical tradition. And maybe this is the part of the sermon where you start to kind of zone out a little bit. So just dial in with me here for a second. The rabbinical tradition is a collection of writings and commentaries on the Old Testament that was passed down by the rabbis. And the rabbis sort of exist as a subset of the Pharisees. This book of rabbinical tradition, just to give you a modern example, functioned a lot like the Book of Mormon functions for Mormons or the Quran functions for Muslims. It's designed to become a lens through which you read the Bible. It's not so much that the Bible qualifies and explains what's going on in the rabbinical tradition. The understanding was you take the rabbinical tradition and lay it over the scriptures, and that's sort of like the secret insider information that you need if you really want to understand what God's doing in the Old Testament. The Bible did not hold clout in the same way that the rabbinical tradition did in the day-to-day life of the Pharisees. Now, in this tradition, it was lawful for Pharisees to eat grain on the Sabbath, so it's not the chewing and the swallowing that's kind of ticking the Pharisees off in Mark chapter 2. It's the picking of the grain on the Sabbath. Now, why? Why would the Pharisees care about that? Because to them, and this is how extreme their law system was, to them, picking is too much like plucking, So that's already, you're rolling your eyes at that, right? What does that matter? That's the stupidest thing you've ever heard in your life. And plucking is too much like threshing, and threshing is work. So if you thresh, then you might as well have plucked, and if you plucked, then you might as well have picked, and if you picked, you did work, and therefore you sinned against God. That's the line of logic that they're tracing that doesn't come from the Bible, but is their overreach in the way that they're trying to interpret and apply the Bible instead of allowing it to speak for itself. Here's why the Pharisees are dead wrong, because the plainest possible reading of Deuteronomy 23, the last passage I showed you about grapes and about grain, shows us that the disciples actually did no work to get the grain that they were eating. It was provided for them by God. God is the one who worked on that Sabbath. If you want to accuse anybody of anything, he's the one that had that grain ready for them before they ever walked through that field. You see, God is so gracious that he doesn't just provide for the hungry in his law, he plans for the hungry in his law. He's prepared for people to have less than they need and to have made terrible decisions with their life and to have nothing to offer anybody who might want to hire them. Even those kinds of people are welcome and need to be fed in the kingdom of God. God wove provision for the homeless. He wove provision for those who could not work, for foreigners, for strangers, all into his law because it's not God's way to wait and see if you and I will do right or wrong before he provides for us. I want to say that to you again. It is not God's way to wait and see if you do right or you do wrong before he decides to provide. His provision is not a response to your obedience or your disobedience. That's Phariseeism. That's legalism. God provides as an expression of his character, as an expression of his love. He provides because he is that kind of person. He is loving. He doesn't have to make a moral exchange with you and I to decide if we deserve to eat today or sleep well today or receive love from other people or him. So what do we have so far? We have a Sabbath, that's puzzle piece one, that was dreamed up by God and that was given to humanity to try to build a rhythm of rest into our life. And then we have allowances made by God for those who would otherwise go hungry, allowances that rely on God's work, not our work, in order to provide for those in need instead of being dependent on how hard those people may or may not have worked. 
The Pharisees see these two laws in conflict, and they elevate their own interpretation of the Sabbath above God's provision. Jesus sees the two laws as totally compatible and perfectly in sync with each other. So now what happens? Now Jesus will make his point. He traces a very similar argument to the one that he made about new wine and old wineskins last week. Look back at Mark 2, verse 25. Jesus answered the Pharisees and he said, A question. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and ate the sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to his companions? You probably can't pick it up easily because it doesn't jump right off the page. Mark isn't like, Jesus smirked, and then he said this. This is a great example of Jesus being witty and sarcastic, and I will stand by that with you. Jesus is asking a question that by its very nature is hugely insulting to the Pharisees. Now, we don't have a record of Jesus laughing, but I can just see him smirking, right? When he asked the experts in the Old Testament if they've ever heard of a guy named David. You guys ever heard of a guy named David? Huh? D-A-V-I-D, yeah, king, uh-huh, killed a, a, a guy named Goliath, you heard of him? Yeah, Je- Jesus is burning the Pharisees a little bit here, and I think it's a pretty serious burn. I'll give you an example from my own life of what I think about here. On Thursday morning, uh, I attended the arraignment of a felon at the federal courthouse. Uh, this is a person who wronged some people who were close to me, and so as a pastor and a friend and somebody who's just involved in the community, I decided to attend and sit in on this event and just witness the justice system at work. Uh, I've been in court a few other times, specifically when Andy and I were foster parents when we were working on adopting our daughter, Elizabeth, but this is my first time witnessing a criminal have to answer for their crimes. And to tell you that this setting was tense would be like saying that Anchorage gets a few inches of snow a year, okay? It would be a massive understatement. I mean, it was like, you talk about tension in the air, you could cut with a knife between this guy who had done terrible wrongs to over 100 people, many of whom are sitting in the gallery all around me in the courtroom. When Jesus asked the Pharisees if they had ever read about David in 1 Samuel chapter 21, which is where the story comes from, it's as if that judge on Thursday had asked the lawyer for the perpetrator if he had ever heard of, I don't know, a court case by the name of Roe versus Wade. I mean, it's throwing the most common, well-known piece of expertise that this person has right in their face in a way that would be disrespectful and insulting. Now, I don't usually write in my Bible, but if I did write in my Bible, I would probably write, ha-ha, out next to verse 25, because I think Jesus got these guys pretty good. Okay, so, sick burn aside, what is Jesus actually talking about? In 1 Samuel 21, David was on the run from the king of Israel. David was not the king yet. He had been anointed as king, but he'd not been installed yet. That's a whole long, complicated thing that I'll be happy to talk with you about later if you want to dig into that with me. But for the sake of the point that Jesus is making, Saul was the first king of Israel. He lost his mind. He became oppressed by a demon. He ran away from God's will. And when God decided to put David on the throne and get rid of Saul, Saul said, no, I don't think so, and decided he was going to kill David to try to solve all of Saul's problems. So David is on the run from Saul, and he reaches a point where he sneaks up on a priest in a city called Nob, which is funny, and begs that guy for a few days' worth of bread. He's like, look, I'm on the run. David's obviously well-known well enough by this priest that he doesn't question, like, what's David doing, really? He does ask him an interesting question about why he's there alone, but David tells him a story and changes the subject. Anyway, David says, I need bread. I'm on the run. I need bread. Can you help me? The only bread that this priest had available, and we can imagine that this conversation is like mere seconds long, okay? David's like trying to hurry. He's got into wherever this priest is. He's asking him for bread. He wants to just grab it and go before Saul and his guys catch up to David and kill him. Now, because it's a Saturday, the priests had just baked 12 fresh loaves of bread that they were going to put on a table in the tabernacle 
as an offering to Yahweh and a reminder that he would provide for each of the 12 tribes. That's why there's 12 loaves of bread. Part of the Saturday morning ritual is they would put 12 fresh loaves out and they would take the old loaves, the stale, weak, old loaves of bread, and they would destroy them. Sometimes they would eat parts of it, sometimes they would give it to animals, sometimes they would burn it. It's different in different parts of the Bible, but basically they threw it in the trash for all intents and purposes. Because the priest has no other bread to offer, he says to David, all I can give you is this bread. That's what the Bible is talking about when it says the bread of the presence with a capital P. doesn't mean that God lives in the bread. It just means the bread is a special part of the way the people of Israel do church in their day and age. So David says, great, give me the bread. And the priest is like, no, God's going to kill you if I do that. And David's like, no, he won't. I'm going to die from not eating bread. So can you give me the bread? And i got to get out of here. And so the priest says, okay. He gives David five of the 12 loaves of bread. David takes it, and according to Jesus, David feeds the rest of his men. Now, if you want to dig into the bread of the presence, you can go to Exodus 25 this week in your personal study and look it up online. That would probably be more boring than most of you care to do. But if you're interested in that and you're a Bible nerd like me, that's how you can chase that rabbit if you want to. We don't have time to do it today. So the, the priest makes that swap. David asks if he can have the bread. He takes it with him. He feeds his companions. Here's the point that Jesus is making. David broke God's law. That's what Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand. Jesus is bringing up a very common, very easy to understand story about one of the most famous men in all of Israel's history to a group of guys that are as dyed-in-the-wool Hebrew as it gets because the point he's going to make is hard to swallow. So when you have to say something hard to a group of people, you try to do it in the simplest, plainest, most straightforward way possible. That's what Jesus is doing. His point is, David chose to break the Sabbath law. Who else has recently been accused of breaking the Sabbath law? Jesus and his apprentices. This is why Jesus is bringing David up. Jesus is interpreting David's choice to eat God's bread as a correct application of Deuteronomy 23. Here's what I mean by that. I know that's, this is like kind of complicated. David was figuratively in a field belonging to God when he entered into the tabernacle and asked for food. Because his heart was rightly aimed at God, because he was grateful for God's provision, David broke the Sabbath law, but was still judged by God as righteous. That's a hard idea to like grapple with that you can break God's law and not immediately be damned, that you can go against what God says and not immediately suffer wrath, that there's a kind of person in the world who could get it wrong and still be loved by God and called by God and brought into God's family. You see, the Jesus of the New Testament is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. We often misattribute Old Testament God as mean, angry, Zeus slinging lightning bolts and fireballs. But when the Jesus of the New Testament invites people into covenant with him and says, everything you've done before today is gone, it's handled, I took care of it. That's not a new idea. That's an extension of the same loving, redeeming character of the God the Father who looked at David on the run from his enemies and said, yeah, you broke the law, but you had to eat. What else could you do? The point that Jesus, I think, is trying to make is this. In both cases, Jesus in Mark 2 and David in 1 Samuel 21, somebody broke God's law but was judged by God, not by Pharisees because who cares what they think, was judged by God to be right to do so. So, excuse me, I don't think many of us as Christians even have this category in our theological lexicon. I don't think we really embrace the idea that grace is so powerful that it actually means that you do things wrong and God draws you close instead of kicking you out. 
that you make mistakes, that you fail, that you aren't good enough, that you run out of time, that you lie, that you cheat. And because your heart is right and you say to God, like the famous story Jesus tells about the tax collector in the temple who's praying to God, he's hitting himself in the chest, he won't even look up toward heaven, and he says, God, if there's any mercy in you, would you forgive me? That's the posture that counts. It's the only posture that counts. It's the opposite of the whole system the Pharisees have set up for themselves. Jesus is taking this conversation very seriously. He's risking a lot by confronting the Pharisees like this because he's not just challenging them personally, he's tearing down their system the system that makes them important, the system that's kept them wealthy, the system that gives them power over people who believe that the Pharisees are basically the gatekeepers of God's kingdom. Notice the complete silence on the part of the Pharisees in response to Jesus' story. The little word and at the beginning of verse 27 tells us that there's been a break in the conversation, that Jesus says, don't you know what David did? And then nobody answers him, because they do. They do know what David did. But if they agree with him because they live their lives in this 24-7 courtroom, if they admit out loud that Jesus is right, then they themselves will be considered traitors to God's law. So they just stand there quietly. Like so many Christians who know what they should do but are scared to death of what it will do to their reputation. So they just stand there. Yeah, Jesus, I hear you. I think I actually even get it. I have no intention of doing what you say. I can't. It's too risky. It'll hurt too bad. I'm not going to take that step. I couldn't do that. I couldn't come over to your team. Do you know what that would cost me? Do you know what that would mean for my life, my reputation, my family, my future, my children, my standing, my finances? Do you know what that would mean? That's all good and right for you. I'll stay out here. You go in and do your thing. You you be the one who understands the law and actually lives it. I'm going to just play games with it out here and try to use what I can from God's word to manipulate other people and to put myself up in a higher position. The third piece of the Sabbath puzzle is this. That breaking God's law is not always judged as sin. Because God judges the heart. Maybe that feels counterintuitive to you, or even a little bit unorthodox. I don't know. I don't want you to get offended. Stay with me, and I'm going to show you what the Apostle Paul said about this. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this to the Galatian church. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified. Paul's saying, I told you every story I have about the Christ. You have the whole thing, and you were bought in. You were convinced. You were saved. It was all a done deal for you. The only thing that I want you to tell me is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law? Did Phariseeing your way into the kingdom work, Galatians? Or, Or was it by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Although you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Have you suffered so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? Does God then give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Same argument Jesus is making. Have you you been fooled? It's a good question to ask yourself. Have you been going to church so long that you don't really believe in grace anymore? It's one of the unfortunate parts of attending church regularly is it somewhat liturgizes and catechizes you into thinking this is all a big system you can win or lose. It's not true. Every time we gather in this room, every spiritual discipline that you practice, every time you kneel down to pray, each of those things is intended and can be an outpouring of love for God. A love that compels you to obedience, not a love that will beat you up if you disobey. That's not really love. Paul goes on in verse 23 to further clarify his point in Galatians chapter 3. He says, Now before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, being kept as prisoners until the coming faith would be revealed. Thus, and this is a very important 
verse, so please catch this. I'm going to read it slowly to you. Thus the law had become our guardian until Christ. Is the law our savior? No. The law functions like a babysitter. You can think of the Old Testament as a period of time where our behavior was so bad that mom and dad needed to leave home and go have a date night and figure out what the heck to do about us, the unruly children that won't listen. Okay? In the meantime, the law came as a babysitter. The law is there to tell you and I what mom and dad would have you do if they were home, but isn't the same thing as mom and dad. You know what this is like if you can think back to when you were a child, or maybe you have kids. The only authority the babysitter has is to warn you that when your dad gets home, he's not going to be happy about what you did, right? The babysitter's going home at 10 p.m. They can't really take your stuff away that long. They can't do much corporal punishment and keep their job. They certainly can't really scare you into submission because it's just going to become a battle of wills and you'll outweigh them. That's the role that the law plays and played. It was designed to be a short-term babysitter that represents the will of God our Father, but is not the same thing as if our Father was with us answering our questions in real time. The very best that a babysitter can do, if my daughter is home and my wife and I are out at a movie or something and somebody's babysitting her, if our daughter turns on every manipulative skill that she has, and she's eight years old, so she has all of those skills. If she assaults the babysitter with every mind game, and my dad said, and these are not the rules, and I can't believe this, and then here come the waterworks, all that babysitter can really do is call me or call my wife, at which point we jump back in, even from a distance, and try our very best to help that child calm down and go to bed. That's the whole goal, right? That's what the law does. The law is not flexible, it's not alive, it can't meet you where you are, it doesn't have the ability to take into account every situation that you're going to encounter in life. Do you know who does? The living spirit of God. So don't try to make the law do what it was never meant to do. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. You Pharisees have taken the Sabbath that was supposed to be a mercy and a grace to you and a gift to humankind on behalf of a God who didn't need a day off but took one to model the thing he knew we needed and you've turned it into condemnation. You've turned it into an opportunity to attack each other, to tear each other down, to kick people out of God's will and out of God's kingdom. How dare you? Paul is saying the law babysat you until when? Second half of verse 24. So that you could then be declared righteous by faith. That's that believing what you heard that he just said earlier. But now that faith has come, we're not under a guardian anymore. The babysitter went home. 10 p.m. came and went. They clocked out, and dad and mom are back in the house. We don't need the guardian anymore. For in Christ Jesus, you are now sons. And isn't that helpful language? Sons of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You look like your father. You look like your savior. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. God judges the heart. He judges what you and I would call the spirit. And through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, your heart can be judged clean, your spirit can be judged as righteous, even though the life you've lived has been neither of those things. Now don't misunderstand me, not self-righteous in the way of a Pharisee, but actually righteous in the way that Jesus and his apprentices are righteous even as they walk through a grain field and pluck pieces of grain and eat them on the Sabbath day. They can do so with a clean conscience and in right standing before God their Father. Now think back to me with that arraignment. That's what I think about in this part of the story, that arraignment I was present for on Thursday morning. Okay, criminal, defense lawyer, federal government, judge, bailiffs, big bailiffs, looming, that was one of the more impressive parts of the whole thing for me, was this feeling of like, are we in a nightclub or is this a courtroom? I mean, they were just like ready for something to go down. So I'm I'm back in that space in my head, 
the thing for that criminal, the thing that matters for him is not so much that he broke the law. That's important. He shouldn't have done that. I'm not saying he was right. But all breaking the law does is bring about judgment. And in the moment of judgment, it's not so much the law that you broke that matters. It's the character of the judge who sits at the bench and decides what happens next for you. You see, this exists even in our legal system. Now, because we try our best to stick to the law and our judges are not God, we mostly have to just apply whatever penalties that Congress and the federal government have told us exist based on what laws we've broken. The thing for David and the thing for Jesus that's not that big of a deal, actually, is that they broke God's law with a good conscience and a right heart. Because all that did was invite God the Father to come and judge them. It just got his attention. When he turned his attention on them, he saw in Jesus, the Christ, perfect and holy, obviously he had a right and righteous heart, and he saw in David faith, the same saving faith that Paul describes in Galatians in the New Testament, that David trusted that God would do right by him and that his, the full weight of his life was resting on God the Father to save him. In both of those instances, the judgment of God says, your heart is right and therefore I judge you righteous even though you did break the law with your actions. This is new covenant thinking for you and I. We live so much of our Christian lives with old covenant thinking. We still want everything to be black and white. We want to score points and lose points. We want to beat ourselves up when we do bad, and we want to ride high when we get it right. And it's not the way God's kingdom works. God's kingdom is totally predicated and built upon the love and generosity and grace of God to you that you have not nor will you ever earn. That's not just true the day that you pray your sinner's prayer and get saved. It's true every minute of your life and will remain true into eternity that you'll spend with God. It will all, always, fully and totally depend on the love of God. That's the only chance you have. So these Pharisees, they're not just getting the Sabbath wrong. They're actually aggressively, deliberately, I would say, dismantling the basics of God's relationship to humankind. They're trying to break apart all of the Legos of God's love and then take the pieces, jumble them up, and build something new out of it that points people to them instead of pointing them to a coming Messiah. In both David's case in the Old Testament and Jesus' case in Mark, there were people ready to accuse, but it was only God's judgment that mattered because both of these men, David and Jesus, were daily in God's presence. They both lived to do God's will and to bring God glory. They both worshiped God with hearts filled to the brim by love for God. So here's the final piece of the Sabbath puzzle. Listen to Jesus' last statement about the Sabbath in verses 27 and 28. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's your fourth piece of the puzzle. Sabbath serves the needs of humanity, not God. That's the primary misunderstanding that the Pharisees have. They believe that Sabbath is just another opportunity, just another arena to get into God's presence and prove themselves. Jesus flips that on its head and he says, no, Sabbath, God doesn't need you to Sabbath. <laughs> well, if anything, it's God's busiest day because you're just sitting around doing nothing. So you finally get to that prayer list and you finally work through some of those emotional issues that you have and you start dealing with your past and you make peace with your spouse or your children or whatever because you've slowed down long enough to be a person. That doesn't help God. It fills his schedule to the brim. The Sabbath is for you. It's for you people who are limited. It's for you people who can't do it all. It's for you people that are hopped up on so many stimulants that you're barely even human beings anymore. You live your life coffee cup by coffee cup by coffee cup. You barely sleep. You're always awake. You're constantly on your phone. You need a break from that, Jesus is saying. And he's saying it 2,000 years ago when the busiest anybody could be is that they swung a sickle from sunup till sundown. 
The problem has only gotten worse for you and I. We don't have to go to bed when the sun goes down now. We can just go and go and go and go. These four pieces of the puzzle work together and they create a new reality for you and I. The Sabbath is no longer legally binding, but it is a spiritual help made available to us as an act of free worship of Jesus. Because we don't need the guardian of the law. Sabbath isn't here to be an intermediary between us and God and do its very best to represent God the Father. We have the Spirit of God now. So the practice of Sabbath changes totally, totally from the way the Pharisees saw it as something that we had to do or else. It changes into an opportunity that's presented to you and I that is probably the most countercultural thing you could possibly do in the modern West. Nothing for a day. Remember those two dynamics that Sabbath orbits around? To not work, that's hard enough, but then to actively engage in rest? Many of us have come up through churches that would tell us that that's deeply selfish, that there's no room for that in God's kingdom. Jesus seems to think that it's not totally required, but it is necessary based on how we were built by God, and it's available to us as a grace. If the law of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, then the law is now an unnecessary guardian that we can walk away from because we have the real thing. And so that means that the original provision that Yahweh made throughout his law for hungry people and tired people and stressed out people, it reveals his character, his character which never changes. So that means that if it was his will to provide food for the hungry in the old covenant, then it is his will to provide rest for you and I in the new covenant. We cannot approach the Sabbath as law, we must approach it as grace. Not as something else that we have to do or else God will destroy us, but as something that we can do. Something that God has provided for us so that, not that he doesn't destroy us, but so we don't destroy ourselves. That's very much the role the Sabbath plays in our lives. So with that open-handed, new covenant, Sabbath as grace mindset, we can approach Sabbath as a practice. A practice that serves our limited humanity by pushing back against our culture of unlimited consumption and unlimited productivity. Here's the greatest irony in this whole passage, and I think it's the point Jesus is trying to make. The Pharisees actually broke the law of the Sabbath in their attempt to keep it perfectly. The Pharisees turned the Sabbath into a work, and therefore they were always working every Sabbath. They thought of the Sabbath and every other spiritual practice as a way to earn God's favor, but that's not actually how the Sabbath works, if you'll pardon my pun. We don't Sabbath so that we can bring our perfect record of obedience to God and impress him with how well we have rested or how much Bible we have read or how many new theological terms we may have memorized or how many hungry people we fed or how many minutes we endured the incessant questions of our children before we blew up on them this time. Why we Sabbath and how to Sabbath and what a new covenant Sabbath looks like, these are all more than we have time to discuss today. So here's my commitment to you. We're going to take a short break, one week from Mark, and we're going to do that next week. Jesus is hitting Sabbath on the nose. I think we need to talk about, we've talked about what it's not and sort of his legal understanding 2,000 years ago. Next week, we're just gonna dive into a quick introduction to Sabbath as a practice from the way of Jesus. But for now, here's my argument to you and this is where we'll close. Sabbath is not the point, it's not even the point of what Jesus is talking about. Sabbath is a pointer. It's a sign, it's an arrow that's supposed to indicate somebody better. The provision of the Sabbath rest in the Old Testament points us to the rest that we now have in Jesus, in his greater and better way. So my prayer for you this week has been that we would resist the way of the Pharisees, even though it's all around us. That we would resist the way of the world. That we would resist the way of our own wickedness that wants to take God's law and break it into pieces and rebuild something that serves us, our ends, our comfort zone, our sense of security. May we instead go the way of Jesus. And if we will... He promises that we will find their rest.
So let me pray that for you now. You can pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. We love you, and we love your word. The truth of your word always sets us free, God. It brings greater freedom for us. I pray today, Father, that for anybody who's been challenged at the idea that you are gracious more than you are uh, law-oriented, God, that you just let that rattle around in them as long as it has to. Days, week, months, whatever it takes, God, that's one of the most important things, I think, for us to embrace, especially those of us who are very familiar with church but may not know your mercy that well. We come to you now, God. We're prepared to sing praises to you. I pray that as we do that, the words that we sing would be rooted in some truth that we heard today. And that for those of us who need time and space to process, to think, to self-examine, maybe God to repent on some level, you would remind us that this is the right space, the right time to do that. We love you, Father. We trust you. We thank you so much for your word. We believe that you'll make it bear fruit in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.